All right, I have a message for you this morning. We're carrying on in our series, uh, walking through the book of Genesis. It is called Surrendered or Scattered. And this morning, what I want to do is pick up from where Pastor Mike left off last week, where he unpacked the story of Noah's Ark. It's an amazing story of a man who was willing to trust God in the face of certain ridicule. A man who believed God's promises, took action, and lived by faith despite the opposing view of the society around him. Remember, Mike pointed out how crazy everyone would have thought Noah was building an ark when it had never rained. He was a man that led his family in the ways of God without compromise. And so Noah and his family and the animals, they leave the ark after the flood recedes. And this is what God says in Genesis 9, verse 1 to 3. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. All the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. There's no way, easy way to say this, my vegan friends, but... Um... <laughs> no, you're good. Jump. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just reading the word. I'm just... <laughs> no, you're good. Jump forward to verse 11. Verse 11, God says, Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will flood, flood waters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. So God plans to use Noah and his family to repopulate the earth, to go out and multiply, to scatter, to fill distant lands, to establish new cultures, to advance God's plan on the earth. Genesis 10 is really interesting because it lists the family lineages of Noah's three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And it lists the lineage of each of them. And at the end of each of those lineages, it says they were dispersed according to their families, according to their languages. It's interesting because they all had the same language on the ark, but now they're being dispersed according to their languages. We get to Genesis 11 and we have the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, let me quickly cut to the end of the story before going back to the start. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin the movie for anyone that has not seen it. Um, God confuses everybody by giving them different languages and then dispersing and scattering them out throughout the world. So Genesis 10 states the consequences of disobedience. And then Genesis 11 goes back to explain the detail and the cause of the action by God. So Genesis 10 actually happens after Genesis 11. This is fairly common in biblical writing and even in some modern day writing today. So it means Japheth, Ham, and Shem's families, as they got off the boat, they didn't disperse willingly like God originally instructed them, but actually they were scattered by God because of their disobedience. Right, back to the start of Genesis 11 with the story of the Tower of Babel. There is obviously a good amount of time that's passed between them getting off the ark and arriving at this point because you've got families that have developed and a society that exists, all with one language, but all unfortunately spiraling further and further away from God, just like they did before the flood. Let's read the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, verse 1 to 9. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of, instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come. 
Let us go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel. Probably we get the word Babel, babbling on, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. This story has always intrigued me. I'm not sure if it's really intrigued you as well, because you've got a people that have developed unity. They're efficient in their work, people that have great ambition, and God looks at that and says, yeah, that's not a good thing. That seems bizarre to me. He says, I'm going to go down, muddle them up, scatter them out, and stop the progress. For years, I've read that and thought, that seems odd. It doesn't seem like the sort of thing God would want to do. Why wouldn't God want people to achieve all that they set their hearts to? Does God feel threatened? Is he scared of what they might achieve? I mean, I know that's not true. God is not scared of us. So why would he do it? And as I've looked further into it, it's become clearer to me exactly why. This is not as it seems. There's a few key moments in the story that I want to point out to you this morning. Let's go back to Genesis 9, where God makes two really important statements to Noah and his sons as they're leaving the ark. He says, firstly, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Do your thing, make more people, get out there. Then number two, he says, never again will a flood destroy the earth. So he gives a really important command and a really significant promise. God says, this is what I want you to do, but also you can trust me in this. But the people said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. That's exactly what God commanded them to do. Let's build a tower so we don't have to scatter. And yet God said, I want you to scatter and go out. They're like, come, let us build something of significance. And then they reveal their motivation so that we could become famous and it can keep us from obedience to God. Look, they know exactly what God has called them to do. But in this bold public display of disobedience, they try to elevate themselves to heaven on their own. They want to build a great tower so that they would be famous and so that they wouldn't be scattered all over the world. Sometimes we think we're building something great but it can be in direct disobedience to what God has instructed us to do. Look, God is not against us being unified. Psalm 133 verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. God's not against us having great ambition. Psalm 2 verse 8. Only ask and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. The same language and unity were not the concern. It was the revealed intention of what they planned to do with that. See, unity and cohesion with wrong motives will have a disastrous result. God said nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them, and so God stops them. Why would God stop people doing big and amazing things? I wonder if it's because without God, we can't really do big and amazing things. We can certainly create all sorts of mess and calamity. We can do all sorts of big and tragic things. I think God is very aware of how capable we are of gross atrocities, and, and He knows that. God's thinking, I can't allow them to do what's in their heart if it's not also in mine. I think of Psalm 37 verse 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Lord, where's my Ferrari? Right? God doesn't allow us to go after the things in our heart if it's not also in his. God is all for us building something of significance, whether that's a thing that we're building or it's our own life. But he is acutely aware of our motivation. You can mask the motivation however you like. You can package it up and present it in a different way. But if the goal is to make yourself the focus of admiration rather than God, and if it's in direct conflict of what God has instructed us to do, I just want to suggest maybe we're building our life, a life of mistrust in the promises of God. 
See, God is very aware of the terrible nature of people and what we're capable of when we self-feed off each other. They were building a reliance on one another and eliminating God from the equation. Essentially, they were like, we don't need God. We can do this all by ourselves. God is seeing that they could, could achieve anything their heart would desire. But if they focused on themselves rather than God, they would be going after the corrupt dreams of the human heart. And all the time we say, listen to your heart. It's actually terrible advice. Listen to God. Heed to His wisdom. Follow His guidance. You know, sometimes we say, I have a gut feeling. For Christians, this can sometimes be discerning. Right? Discernment is a spiritual gift. You find it in 1 Corinthians 12. Those in part three of Grow Check, we're going to discuss the spiritual gifts that you've discovered. And if you don't know what yours are, you can join us next time. But it's a spiritual gift. Sometimes with that spiritual gift, you can tell the difference when something's from God or not. You can walk into a room and go, something's not quite right. It's a, it's a good spirit or it's an evil spirit. It's the gift of discernment. That is one form of godly listening to your heart. But for the most part, our heart is not trustworthy. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 to 10. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. You know, living a life of trusting God is the most exhilarating experience. It takes control out of our hands and it places it into God's hands, right? It's getting all carry underwood with your life and saying, Jesus, take the wheel. Like, and it's, it's scary and you've got to be vulnerable, but it's the most amazing place to live. Living a life that trusts God for who He is and what He says means believing these four statements to the core of who you are. If He said it, He meant it. We sang it this morning, didn't we? If he said it, I'm going to believe it. If he said it, he meant it. Number two, he's good in every season of life. He's good in your good seasons and he's good in your bad ones. Number three, he will never leave me or abandon me. That's his promise to you. And number four, he knows me and loves me. To trust God, you've got to believe those four to the core of your being. If he said it, he meant it. He's good in every season of life. He will never leave me or abandon me. He knows me and loves me. See, everything about the story of the Tower of Babel screams mistrust in God and the unhealthy elevation of self. Now, notice how in the scripture that we read, the story of the Tower of Babel, it says that they used bricks and tar. Well, in Genesis 6.14, it tells us that that exact same tar material is what Noah used to waterproof the ark. It was a good thing to use back then. And despite God's promise to never flood the earth again, the people continued to build a tower and they waterproof it. Moses' mother used the same tar material to waterproof the basket that she floated Moses down the river in. God had promised that they didn't need to worry about a flood ever again, but their actions suggested that they didn't trust God. They still built their structure and waterproofed it, just in case. Remember, these people are either the people or like their grandparents went through the flood. They've heard it all before. They know God's promised it, but they can't quite put their action to it. We're going to build it and we'll just, you know, we'll just use this stuff just in case another flood comes. Not only was the motivation for building the tower corrupt, but intertwined within every brick in the way of this tower was the mistrust of God's promises. Not only were they building in disobedience, but they even attempted to repel and block out the hand of God. What they were building was in fear. Right? What they were building, they constantly had the fear of what God might do despite what he had said he was going to do. They didn't do what God said, and they didn't trust His promises. And the result, He scattered them. This is the crazy thing. You might say, yeah, waterproofing, bad. No, waterproofing is amazing. In fact, waterproofing the ark was exactly part of God's plan. 
Sometimes what is used for obedience in one season, if held on to for too long, becomes disobedience in another. Let me give you an example. Some people, they come to church and they're feeling a bit beaten up, weary, tired, exhausted, and you just want to come and sit and be refreshed. And we are all for that. We invite that. We think that is an excellent idea. And you should totally do that if you feel like you're in that season of life. But eventually, when you are refreshed, when you do feel like you've got your feet on solid ground again, God's going to call you out and say, okay, it's time to get up. It's time to get involved in the team and start making a difference. Our team was always meant to have you in it. But then what we can say is, but God, I thought you said I could come and just sit. It's like, yeah, you could. And in that season, it was obedience. But now in this season, it's not. It was used to trust God back then, but now it's used to ignore him. There are some amazing lessons for us to learn from the story of the Tower of Babel, and I want to unpack them for you in the minutes we've got left. Here are some reminders of what your life might look like if you truly live a life trusting God. The first one is this. I noticed it in the story. You don't have to make a name for yourself. This can be hard for many people, but especially two groups. You ready? First one is this. Those who have lots of ambition. The dreamers, the schemers, the revolutionaries, and the entrepreneurs. Those that carry a deep sense of wanting to do something significant. And it's awesome, but the temptation here is to believe that if you don't make a name for yourself, no one else is going to do it. That all of your open doors and opportunities rest solely in your hands, and you can unintentionally cut God out of the picture. This can lead to people trampling over others in order to climb the corporate ladder. It can lead to people compromising their character and integrity in order for others to like them more who were in their industry. It can lead to a ruthless promotion of self, which will likely result in self-centeredness, selfish ambition, and pride. And then there's those who are affected who maybe are, are wrestling with a whole lot of insecurity. People who aren't sure if they're liked by others. People who aren't sure if their life will count for something or if they'll be remembered in the years to come. And the temptation here is to think, I need to find a way to make people like me, to elevate myself, to promote myself forward, to try and help people see how valuable I am. The people said this, then they said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves. With a tower that reaches into the sky, this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. The first error in their thinking was to build something for themselves rather than having a devoted life to God where whatever you would build, whether it's your life or something that you're building, it would be for the glory of God. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Look, I've got no doubt in my mind that the building of a tall tower was no issue for God. I don't think he had any issue with the building of a tall tower. It's what that tall tower represented that grieved God's heart. The tower was for their own glory. The tower was to promote themselves and it was in defiance of what God had asked them to do. I need you to know it's okay to build something of significance. Again, whether it's something that you're building or whether it's in your own life. It's okay to build a significant business or a brand or become an expert in your area. It's okay to have ambition for big things. But when the motivation is to provide for yourself or make a way for yourself in case God doesn't, I think you're living in a place of mistrust in the promises of God. You're slowly building God out of your life. See, every brick in the Tower of Babel that they built up was a brick in defiance to going out. Every brick in the Tower of Self was only contributing to a structure without God's blessing on it. And so the most important question you've got to ask yourself here is why? But you've got to keep yourself in check and you've got to be brutally honest. And no one else can do this for you. Why am I building the business? Why am I working the long extra shifts? 
Why is it that I really want people to see me as an expert in my area? Is having my name known more important than having his name known? Because becoming self-aware of our own motivations is a sign of healthy, mature faith. Because if you're really honest and you reflect on it, and the answer is, because I'm terrified I won't have enough money for retirement, or I want my parents to be proud of me, or my motivation is I just really want to be acknowledged and I want to be significant and accepted. If it's, I know God's promised it, but just in case he doesn't come through, I'm just going to have all my bases covered. It's okay to find yourself in this place. But by identifying it, we can take it and we can surrender it to God and ask Him to transform our motivation. Maybe it would be better being something like, because I want to contribute to a better world. Because I actually want to make a difference in the lives of others with this gift of life that God has given me. Because I want to follow God's wisdom and building an inheritance to leave to my children and my grandchildren. Because I want to honor God with my gifts and master them for the glory of God. See, the issue for those in the story is not that they were building but that they were building for themselves. They were putting their own interests and accolades over the clear instructions of God. James 14 is an amazing reminder for us. It says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. You know, I often consider the legacy that I'll leave and the very human, self-centered, selfish part of me thinks, will people remember my name and what I've done? <laughs> Probs not. Maybe, maybe one generation. And I, I've been trying for a long time now to convince Darcy that it's a good idea for us to go to Mars. I'm dead serious. I see on the news Elon Musk is building this thing and they're going to start a civilization on Mars. She's like, what about me? I'm like, what about you? You're coming. Like, it would be amazing to go to Mars. I already have an out-of-this-world body. She already talks funny. Like, would fit right in. <laughs> I'm like, wouldn't it be cool to be the first pastors on Mars? We could start the first church. It would be amazing. And she's like, we, we, we lead a church. I'm like, I love them, but Mars, how good would it be? I'm like, wouldn't it be amazing to do something for like the preservation and the like continued existence of mankind? Look, straight up, it's selfish ambition. She doesn't, she doesn't want to borrow it. Thankfully, one of us in the marriage has a sound mind. I'm just, I don't know, ambitious and it sounds really cool, but it is selfish ambition. The measure of a good life is not who remembers my name. The measure of a good life is how I helped others to remember his how I help to draw others from members. And that's not just because I'm a pastor. The same call is on your life equally as it is on mine. Because we will come and go, but are missed in a moment and gone in the next, but the Lord remains forever. And if we try to build our name at the expense of elevating His, we're only adding bricks to a tower that will inevitably stand for nothing. Now, if you can achieve both of those at the same time with pure motive, you go for it. If you can elevate your name, build a brand, if that's what it looks like, but your motive is pure, then you go for it. But if not, if your motivation is self-focused, you may have strayed away from trusting God. Second thing that I noticed in the story is this. You don't have to see what God sees. The passage we read said that they wanted to build a tower into the sky. Now, other versions of the same scripture say it like this. They say they wanted to be a, build a tower unto the heavens. And if you've ever read that story before, you probably have thought, oh, they want to build a tower up to heaven. Now, it seems ridiculous that a group of people would think they could build a tower so tall they would actually reach heaven. And I think you'd be right. I don't think it's reasonable for us to expect that they actually believe they could build a tower tall enough to access heaven, but rather that it would be an observation point of the heavens. You know, most astrological and occult practices have a history back to the Tower of Babel. If they really wanted to build a tower to reach heaven, it's unlikely they would have started on the plain of Shinar, which is about sea level. 
they would have probably started on one of the nearby mountains to get a head start. Right, this tower was very real. In fact, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus said the Tower of Babel stood in his day and he had seen it. It was once again an attempt for mankind to see more of the picture than they could currently see, to perhaps see what God sees. Isn't that the temptation of all of us? It's interesting that the higher up they built the tower, the clearer they would have had a view on where they were meant to go. The higher up they went, the more obvious their disobedience and pride would have become. Do you know why hotel rooms get cheaper in Hamilton the higher up you go? Because the higher up you go, the more of Hamilton you have to see. (laughs) That brings me great joy. Trusting God means being okay, not seeing as much of the picture as you would like. What a hard place to live in, but we all live there. None of us can see what God can see. It's coming to an understanding that when God calls you to action, He sees more of it than you see. He can see the challenges ahead of you. He can see of the opposition you'll face. He knows of the hiccups and the speed bumps along the way, but He also knows of the seas that He's parted ahead of you. He knows of the support of people that He's going to bring into your world. He knows of the resource that He's going to place into your hands. He knows of the spiritual gifts and the personality type that you carry, even if you don't know it yet. And while we may not see the God of the universe, who knows you by name, who can see ahead of you and all around, of you, all around you, He can see and He plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. You know, when Thomas saw the risen Jesus, he was, he's known as Doubting Thomas. Sad for the guy. But when he saw Jesus, he put his finger in the wound in Jesus' side. And at that moment, he knew the same Jesus that was crucified had been resurrected. And he believed that he was God. It says this in John 20, verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You are blessed when you believe God, even if you can't see what he sees yet. Trusting God means celebrating before the breakthrough. It means taking the first step when you can't see the whole staircase. It means getting brave and just inviting someone to church, even though you've got no idea how they're going to respond. It means when there is an ocean in front of you, you believe that He is a God that can part them and give you dry ground to walk all the way through on. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6, Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding or your own vision or your own sight. Trust in the Lord. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do. And he will show you which path to take. Trusting God means believing him before you can see it yourself. The third thing I notice is this. You don't get to redefine good and evil. Let's go right back to the start of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The first moment of man breaking God's trust was around the knowledge of good and evil. God made it abundantly clear that they could eat of, partake, and engage with any other fruit in the garden. But there was something that God could foresee was not safe to rest in the hands of mankind And that was defining right from wrong. God has established clear boundaries for mankind to live within, but there's this critical moment where the serpent tempts Eve. And he says to her, surely God didn't say that. He literally just said it. He says, surely God didn't say that. You won't die. He's just afraid or he just knows that if you eat of it, you'll become like him knowing good from evil. 
perhaps perceiving good from evil, judging good from evil, determining good from evil, one of the most damaging outcomes of this sin and the sin that has permeated the world since has been this idea that despite God setting clear definitions of right and wrong, we have come to believe that we could define it better. We are so advanced in society that what has been right and true for thousands of years, don't worry God, we know better than you. We live with the self-inflated idea that God has fallen out of touch with society and humanity and that his instructions have become outdated. And we're like, thank you, Lord, for your service, but we'll take it from here. I can imagine that society of Babel knowing dang right that God had sent them out. It was very clear to them. They'd known it for generations from leaving the ark to getting to this point that they were to scatter. They knew it, but instead they decided, yeah, I know you've said that, God but we reckon you're wrong on this one. We reckon we might actually just set up camp right where we are. This can be one of the hardest things because you have a never-changing, consistent Word of God and an ever-changing society. The standards and values of God are timeless and consistent, and then the values of this self-focused society who look at each other and say, we should build a tower and make ourselves famous. You need to know this morning that what God calls sin is sin. When God says flee from sexual immorality, he means it. When God says we should pursue unity, we should pursue it. When God says it's good to forgive others, he's right. There is a lot that God has entrusted into our hands as humanity, but deciding what is fundamentally right and wrong is not one of them. And can I suggest this morning, if you find yourself wrestling with some of this and trying to negotiate with God, there might just be a little bit of Tower of Babel going on in your heart. Just a little bit of, I know you said it, God, but I reckon I know better on this one. Uh, ben, you can join me. I noticed a very interesting pattern in the book of Genesis about how God deals with those who try to elevate themselves above the plans of God. People who either intentionally or unintentionally try to build God out of their life. And we convince ourselves and we justify ourselves. I'm just covering the bases. I'm just being diligent and vigilant. I'm, and I'm not saying don't do those things. It was the building of the tower was never the issue. It was the motivation of the tower. So that we don't have to follow God. So we don't need Him in our life. So we can do it all on our own. And we convince ourselves that what we're building is good and noble. But if it's building God out of our life, it's not. I noticed this that Satan tried to elevate himself above God. He saw God receiving all the worship and he thought, I'd quite like that. And he tried to elevate himself so that he would receive the worship. What happened to him? He was cast out of heaven and scattered with a third of the angels. And then Adam and Eve tried to elevate themselves, wanting to have the power to redefine and judge like God. What happened to them? Cast out of the garden and scattered. And then the Tower of Babel shows the people trying to elevate themselves in rebellion, maybe to see what God sees, to take matters into their own hands and what happened to them, cast out of Babel and scattered. All of these are saying, I don't trust God. I reckon I can do it better. And this has been the constant cycle of humanity, which only highlights the incredible grace of God. Man, I feel like if people had let me down, in the same consistent ways as many times as the Israelites and the people of God let God down, I'll be like, all right, you, you've 27th strike, you're out. Like, I, In my humanity, I'll be like, I'm sick of this. 
And yet God just continually has grace for people. And although groups of people and societies have constantly got this wrong and stumbled and looked inward instead of to God and taking matters into their own hands, although that has happened by and large, you don't have to make the same mistake as an individual. Actually, you can determine to live your life choosing to trust God, to live a life of vulnerability snug in the hands of the God of the universe who made you, who knows you, who loves you. You don't have to make a name for yourself. You don't have to see all that God sees and you don't get to redefine what is good and evil. See, when we understand these three truths and we live by them, I tell you, you're gonna experience so much freedom. It's like the weight is lifted. You can trust that God will make a way for you and He will provide exactly as He promised. You can trust that God can see more of the picture than you can and He's worth following. And you can trust that God has defined right from wrong correctly and we don't need to try and redefine it from human knowledge. Like That one's just not in our job description. That one's beyond our pay grade. It's not in our hands. We don't need to worry about it. We can simply trust the God who said it. Who needs to trust God a little bit more? I know I certainly do. Come on, let's close our eyes. Let me pray for you. God, I just thank you that how much or little we know of you, I believe is enough to place our trust in you. That you are a trustworthy God and you've shown yourself to be good and true and consistent time after time, generation after generation, and you're not going to stop now. God, we look to those in the story of the Tower of Babel. We don't look back thinking what idiots and judge them, but perhaps today we might see ourselves in it a little that we all have tendencies to stray away from following you and trusting you. And I just pray in the name of Jesus for every person sitting here today that you would highlight an area of their life that perhaps they could trust you a little more in. Maybe not trying to be so ambitious that we forget that you are the one that opens doors for us. You make a way where there seems to be no way. You are more interested in our success than we ever could be because you see what could be done with our life even when we can't. God, for those that maybe feel like they're staring into blankness, into darkness, and they're scared of what lays ahead, I thank you, Lord, that even when we can't see it, you can see it. And we don't need to take matters into our own hands to try and see what you see. We can simply trust that if you said it, you meant it, and we're gonna follow you into the darkness. We're gonna follow you into the unknown. And we know that you're going to be right beside us. You're not waiting for us someplace distant in the darkness, but you're with us in the journey. And your word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We thank you for your presence in our life. And for those that have been maybe wrestling with trying to redefine what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, taking our trust off the truth of your word and the accuracy of your instruction, God, just bring us back into alignment with who you are in your word. Let us trust that what you said you meant the way you said it, you meant it. Bring us into alignment with that, we pray in Jesus' name.